0: Are you a fake? When I lived in uh, France, uh, France had just started getting reality TV. Uh, They were a little bit later in catching on than we were with the sort of Big Brother and things like that. Uh, But when France decided to do reality TV, they decided to do it a a bit crueler than the way that we do it. Uh, They had a, a series, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a sort of crueler version of Big Brother. The principle was the same, you were stuck in a house, You had the diary room, you had people being voted off, and the winner was the last one standing. But there was one difference in the French show. All but one of them were actors. All but one of them were actors. So for several weeks, we watched this one chap, one guy, surrounded by actors in the house. We got to see behind the scenes as the producers and directors decided what to do, as they found ways to bring back the people that he disliked. Uh, and to somehow get rid of the people that he liked. And they also worked out what he wanted by the fact he was telling them in the diary room how things were going. It turned out he was falling in love with one of the other contestants, which made it quite difficult for them. And all was only revealed on the last episode as the winner was about to be announced. It was him and the guy that he really hated that they kept bringing back all the time. And suddenly the presenter gets word in his ear... It turns out that actually one of them is a fake. One of the contestants is an imposter. And then one of the earlier contestants stepped forward and said, "Well, yes, it's me. I'm an actor." And then one by one all the other contestants step forward and say, "Actually, no. I'm an actor." And this guy is left thinking what on earth is going on? He's sort of looking round. He's been surrounded by fakes for weeks and weeks, and he never knew. But now all is revealed. And if you're wondering, he got all the prize money. That was their way of uh, saying that it was all okay. But this morning, we've got that question before us. Are you a fake? Am I a fake? Are we acting? Are we pretending? Perhaps no one can tell. Perhaps you know the right words to say at the right times. Perhaps it's one face at church, and then another face on the way home. Well, Israel here in chapters 6 and 7 had much the same problem. The words were right that they were saying, but their hearts were wrong. So God is going to expose their hypocrisy, their acting, their faking. So this morning we're going to get a sort of repentance, uh, fake repentance sandwich, if you like. Uh, the bread is on either side with a sort of fake repentance. That's a bit thinner, a bit shorter. And then the real meat is in the middle. As we see four pictures, uh, a fakery there in, in the middle. So first of all, we see fake or false repentance. Uh, Let me just read to you again verses one to three of chapter six. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he might heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on. To know the Lord He's going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Now if you remember, God had told them last week in the passage before that he was going to come at them like a lion. He was going to tear them apart. He was going to destroy them. But their answer to this is, well, he's not really going to destroy us. He's just doing this as a bit of a wake-up call. He's not really going to tear us apart like a lion. After a few days, we'll be back on our feet. It's no more than a bad cold, really. You know, two or three days and we'll be sorted. Let's just return to the Lord and everything will be okay. Just as automatically as the sun comes up in the morning, God will forgive us. Because that's God's job after all, isn't it? But there are two problems with this. One is that you notice there in those verses, it's self-proclaimed. They are saying, uh, this is what we're going to do. This is what God's going to do. That's why the translators have put it in speech marks. It's their speech. It's not what God is saying. It's what they're saying. And the second problem with it is that it's not real. It's not a real turning to the Lord. What follows in this chapter shows us that this is really fake repentance. Perhaps they think they mean it at the time, But their actions will show that actually this is something different. It's no more than an act. At best, they're deluding themselves. And at worst, they're trying to deceive God. So to help us see why this repentance is fake, Hosea gives them four pictures of fakery. Four ways that they're deceiving themselves and faking it. So as we look through these, we might find ourselves feeling a little bit uncomfortable It might be a bit close to where we are this morning. Well we're reminded in Hebrews, aren't we? Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you feel that this might be you, then listen in. So four pictures of fakery. The first picture is the Jew that disappears. Have a look at verses four to eleven. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam they transgressed the covenant, there they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers trapped with blood, as robbers lie in wait for a man, So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. He's saying they're like the Jew that disappears. As God talks to them, he can't help but think back over Israel and Judah's history. It seems like they're always repenting in a way, but never really repenting. Their love for him, he says, is like a morning cloud. You have that situation where you've looked out over the valley on a morning and uh, you see all the clouds uh, by the Chevin or perhaps by Ulltli Moor, but by a couple of hours, in fact probably even half an hour, they're gone. They're like the morning clouds, there for a little while and then it's gone. But like the dew in the morning, you know, when you go out in your grass on your lawn, you see the dew there, but again, by lunchtime, it's gone. It looks real. It looks lasting when it's there, until it disappears. And really, what they're showing by this, by, the, by their fake repentance, is fake love, because it doesn't really last. You see, intensity doesn't equal Reality. Feelings can be very intense sometimes, but not last. Think of the parable of the sower. The plants seem to shoot up, don't they, at first. They're all enthusiastic. They're going for it. Until they're scorched, or they're choked. They look like the real deal for a while, but clearly they weren't because they don't last. Perhaps Israel think they're being genuine as they declare their intention to return to the Lord. But their actions, in just a little while, will show that their love and repentance are not genuine. So as we point the finger at Israel and Judah, we need to point the finger at ourselves as well. Can our love for God be like that? Burning hot one moment in church when it's your favourite song again? Next day, gone. Burning hot when you hear that sermon, yes Lord, changes. Next day, can't be bothered. And it's a form of fakery. Being hot one minute and cold the next. Hot at church, cold at home. Hot one month, cold the next. It seems like Israel were very vocal when they're hot and very quiet when they're cold. What you're left with is the impression that they're always hot. They're always on board with God. They want you to hear when they repent. But when push comes to shove, it's an act. When they go home, nothing will change. When they go home, life will just carry on as before. Can we be guilty of that? Let me tell you, I think we can be guilty of that in the space of five minutes. The Lord Almighty speaks to us through his word on a Sunday morning. The Lord of the universe talks as we hear his word preached. He touches our hearts, he touches our souls. We respond to it as we sing the last song. And then the last note of the song hits. What do we talk about? Oh, weather's been a bit changeable this week. We go from hot to cold in, in five minutes, no, five seconds sometimes. Either these things do affect us or they don't. Either God is speaking to us or he isn't. Do we fake it in the sermons and then show what we really care about in our over-coffee conversations? And that's just This morning. You see, God wants our hearts. He doesn't just want our showing showy offerings. Have a look again at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God doesn't want the showy stuff. He wants our hearts. He wants what's inside of us. The picture here reminds me a bit of the marriage imagery that she used all the way through the book. If you remember, Hosea was called to live out this picture uh, as he marries uh, adulterous uh, Gomer. I would say Homer. Gomer <laughs> marries her, but showing God's grace, showing, showing God's love uh, for us. And if you think about it, Israel and God are are, are like a married couple in a way. The hu- it's a bit like the husband cheating on the wife and then buying her flowers. That's what he's talking about here. As they bring their sacrifices to God. That's what Israel are like. They say, well, it doesn't really matter that I cheated. It doesn't really matter I've gone off with these other gods. Look, here's some flowers. Here's an offering. But God says, no. I want your heart, not your presence. I want your love, not a load of hot air and a bouquet of flowers. I want you to care about knowing me. Rather than treating me like some divine vending machine. Offerings in, blessings out. It's almost as though God has said, I'm your spouse. Not your slot machine for blessing. And God has tried to speak to them. He sent them the prophets. He sent his word to them. But like Goma, they've gone away to other lovers. Bringing others to their temples. Even their priests have joined in with this spiritually murdering people as they lure people to these false temples. The places that are mentioned in our passages—a uh, passage here is, are on the route to temples from Jerusalem onto these fake uh, temples. Adam there is probably more a, a place. It was on the way to Shechem, a place where you'd sort of stop off on your way to a false temple. You see, they, they say they love God, but they chase after these other things. Their love just comes and goes. So offering words and offerings to try and get make things right just doesn't work. God sees their love for what it is a cloud that flies away, a dew that disappears. They're fakes. So that's the first picture of fakery, the dew that disappears. The second one is the oven that devours. Have a look at seven one to seven. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. And the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. The thieves break in. And the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make their king glad. And their princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven. Whose baker ceases to stir the fire. From the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king the princes became sick. With the heat of wine, he stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smoulders, and in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. What he's saying here is that Israel is like an oven that devours. Now most ovens that you use give you things that you can consume. Don't they? You know, you put your bread in, or no, put your bread in, you put your dough in and you get bread out. But Israel is like an oven that consumes you. It looks like a good thing on the outside, but inside it's a blazing fire that consumes all around. The sin of Israel is so bad that as God comes to them to heal them, He just sees their sin before His face. They're trickery, their villainy. You see, Israel consumes all around them. Israel had a habit of consuming its leaders and replacing them with someone else. See, Judah, the southern kingdom, they had the same dynasty of kings for all their time. Israel were always swapping between them because the previous guy would murder, no, the next guy would murder the previous guy. Get it that right way around. They're always consuming their leaders. Now that sounds good when you're a king-in-waiting, waiting waiting for the people to murder the last one, but it's less good when you become king, and now you're the person they want to destroy. That's the irony of this situation. They think it's good. They've got all this passion. It looks like zeal, doesn't it? Let's get rid of the bad king, bring in a good one. But it turns out they're never satisfied. They're like a faulty oven. They just keep burning. Well, again, as we point the finger at Israel, we need to think about ourselves. Can we as Christians be ovens that devour? I think we can. All of us know churches, don't we, through the years who have essentially consumed themselves, working through leaders and pastors in the name of zeal for God, ending up destroying the gospel witness in their area for generations sometimes. When there's heat in us, we need to check it's there for the right reasons. In some things, actually, we need to heat up, don't we? Our passion for evangelism, our love for one another our love for God but in some things we need to rein in our heat don't we when we're scorned when we're angry when we're on nobody's side but our own and some of those things aren't obvious on the surface are they we can make it look like we're very zealous for the Lord when inside we're just angry so Israel are like faulty ovens that burn others instead of baking and we can be like that too We can burn, and it's faking. The third picture of fakery is the cake that deceives. The cake that deceives. Have a look at verses eight to 10 of chapter seven. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake nocturned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. The cooking imagery continues as we talk about a cake not turned. The picture there really is a cake, probably a bit thicker than a pancake, that's been, not been flipped over. And so I don't know if you've ever had that on Pancake Day, where you've accidentally done one side and burnt it to a crisp and the other side's still raw. That's really what it's talking about. Burnt on one side, sort of raw, maybe done on the other perhaps probably we're more familiar with the idea of toast. You know, you can get toast and you burn it on one side and it looks fine on the other. Well, that's what he's saying they're like. They're like a cake that deceives. It looks okay, basically, on one side until you flip it over and you see the awful truth. I've had that sometimes in restaurants. I don't know if you've ever had it, where i bought a burger and they've sort of tried to hide the fact that they burnt one side of it by putting it right at the bottom or... um I've seen it on Bake Off. I don't know if you've been watching Bake Off. Uh, but it's never never really burnt. It's always the idea of a soggy bottom, isn't it? It looks great on top, but when, you turn, when they flip it over, there's that soggy bottom at the bottom. Well, that's what he's saying they're like. They're deceiving. They look good on top, but underneath it's a different picture. Israel are mixing with the nations, it says in verse 8. They're going along with their idols and their customs. They're engaging in the practices of the pagan nations who are around them. But they're trying to do it secretly. They're trying to hide it. They're going on as though nothing is happening. Bringing sacrifices to Baal, but still bringing sacrifices to the Lord. Making oaths to Baal, but still using the Lord's name. What they don't realise is that these foreigners, these strange gods that they're following, are taking their strength. They're making them old before their time. I find it really hard to believe they they can't see their grey hairs. I see them every time I, I look in the mirror they don't realise what's going on. They don't see what's happening. They're so proud of what they're doing that their life and their youth is just zapped away without them noticing, as their wives and daughters are exploited. As in their minds now, the harvest depends on these arduous sacrifices that they have to do instead of a loving God. For all this, though, they don't turn back to God. They've turned into two-faced fate. Faking everything is normal while actually underneath they're worshipping another God. Well, as Christians, again, can we be cakes that deceive? Yes, we can, can't we? When we're one thing on the outside and another on the inside. It's different from the Jew, you see. It's not that it comes and goes, hot and cold. It's like a steady state of being those two things at once. It's not that we're hot one minute and cold the next. It's that we look hot but we're cold inside. And this is probably the most dangerous, I think, for us as Christians today. Churches, if you like, are full of cakes. Not in the, uh, the sense of, you know, you're eating them. But one thing on the outside, another on the inside. We subconsciously encourage one another to hide our struggles in churches, I think. While maintaining the air that everything's normal. Now, I don't think that's deliberate. But it's that we don't like showing that we're sinners. Yet, as a church, that's actually one thing that we all agree on, isn't it? That we're sinners. And yet we don't show it. We don't talk about it. We are sinners. But if you're anything like me, you start thinking, well, yeah, other people are sinners, but not I mean. They all look so sorted. Well, let me give you some statistics. Some things you can actually measure, just to give you a picture of what we're like on the inside things that you can measure, that I bet you would never guess. So for the men this morning, some stats, again, not picking on this particularly, but just things you can measure. So Premier Christian magazine did a a survey of Christians, broadly evangelical. 42% of UK Christian males said that they were addicted to pornography. 42% of UK Christian males addicted to pornography. That's about half. 75% 75% look at pornography on at least a monthly basis, it says. That's shocking, isn't it? Yet would you know that if we talked to one another? Would you know that on a Sunday morning? Women. I'm not just picking on the blokes. Do you know 17% of Christian women admit to some form of affair during their married life? It's nearly one in five. Abortion rates among Christian women across the world, seem uniformly the same in the church and outside the church as well. So in the UK, that would be one in three women. And I've known Christian women who have had abortions. These things do actually play out, but we don't talk about these things because we want to give the impression that we're okay, that everything's normal, everything's fine. And my hunch is that those statistics are probably true. We're far more sinful, actually, as a church than we think we are. But would we know it from our conversations in the week and on a Sunday morning? Would you know if someone is struggling with pornography or is struggling with the guilt of a past abortion? I have a hunch, actually, as Christians, we're more likely to talk to our non-Christian friends about these things. Why? Because we're surrounded by cakes not turned. We think, actually, the people around us are sorted, whereas we think our non-Christian friends, well... Maybe they're not so sorted, so they'll probably understand a bit better. But reality check this morning, Christians struggle with sin. That's almost the definition of a Christian, one who is struggling with sin. We fight against it, but it's there. So I'd love to suggest an easy solution this morning to be in a cake. One thing on the inside, another on the outside. The problem is that we're all different. We all express ourselves in different ways. We all feel comfortable with different levels of intimacy. So I'm not suggesting that we have a Sunday morning confession slot where somebody comes up the front and confesses all their sins. But could we maybe try and think of maybe making one step away from being a cake this morning? Whatever that looks like for you and what your situation is. Because the risk that we run is actually that we end up being a church full of cakes. A church full of fakes, where everybody thinks everyone else is okay apart from them. So maybe one step away this morning from being a cake. Because we can be cakes that deceive, just like Israel. The final picture of fakery we get is the dove that dithers. That's uh, 7, uh, 11 to 13. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria, As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to to the report made to the congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. The picture here is of an elegant dove flying in the sky, going back and forth, back and forth, but not knowing where to rest. Uh, it's a bit like, if you ever have that situation where you're walking down the street and you're going way and you suddenly realise that you meant to be the other way and you turn around and you end up going back and then you get, oh no, hang on, no, I need to go to the shops. And you, you're really hoping that nobody's noticing that you're going back and forth. <laughs> Even the Prime Minister's done it. If you, if you go on YouTube, you can see that she walked the wrong way out down Downing Street and had to stop and then go the other way. It's something that we all do all the time. But here the picture is of this dove sort of doing that, going between one place and another and then going back. And this was the political reality of their day. That's what Israel were doing. They were flitting between Assyria and Egypt for help. They were sort of going back and forth across. They were the two big powers of the day. And it's not uncommon for them, if you look at the the book of Kings, for them to sort of talk to one while they're talking to the other as well. They're sort of hedging their bets between these two superpowers. Instead of trusting in God, they tried to do the spiritual splits. Trying to help, get help from other places. You see modern day examples of this sort of thing. So Italy in the the first and second world wars, you know, looked like one group was winning, so they went with them and then, you know, changed their minds halfway through and went with the other. Or you can imagine during the Cold War, you know, countries that did deals with the Americans, but also did deals with the Soviets as well. If either side found out, they'd be fuming. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Israel in their history. So it's no wonder that God calls them stupid and senseless. And it's fake because they're acting one way towards one nation and they're acting another way towards another. It's sort of two-facedness that they've got. Can we do the same as Christians? Well, yes, we can. Uh, We can do the spiritual splits, can't we? We can say that we're trusting in God, but really we we start to trust in something else. Or, Or we can start to sort of flip between things. Uh, all the time, not really knowing where our trust is. But God pronounces his woe on them. If they're birds, he says he'll catch them with his net. When news of their duplicity catches up with them, they're going to be destroyed. So they're like a dove that dithers. They just can't see where to land. They just go between God and Egypt and Assyria. They don't know where to go. And we can be the same flitting about between different things. And to make things worse, our passage does not end on a high note. False Repentance, again, at 7, uh, 14 to 16. They do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not awkward, they are like treacherous bows, their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. God pronounces woe on them because they've strayed from him. God pronounces destruction on them because they've rebelled against him. He would redeem them, but instead of trusting, they're lying about him. This is the nation that was supposed to share the truth of God with the nations around them, but instead they're spreading lies. What lies? What lies? Well, we don't know. Perhaps the lies they believe themselves, that he's not the only God, or he doesn't really care if you worship other gods. Yeah, he'll just forgive. That's what he does. It would certainly fit, wouldn't it, with what comes after that. They cry to me from their beds. Sorry, cry to me. They do not cry to me from their hearts, but they wail upon their beds. It seems as though they're calling to him, wailing even to God. But while their lips are engaged, the hearts aren't. It reminds me a bit of Esau in Hebrews. You've got on the back of your notice sheet, uh, Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. It's talking about Esau, I've just put the context there for you, but verse 17. But you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Same sort of picture, isn't it? Esau crying on his bed, but not really engaging his heart. Or 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, there is a grief, there is a sadness that makes you cry on your beds, but not lead you to repentance. Those things are not the same thing. Repentance doesn't just mean sadness, it means a change of action. And that's something that Israel wasn't prepared to do. Though they wail on their beds... They're only after grain and wine. But they want, they want stuff from God rather than God. So really God sums them up that they're just rebels. God has raised them up. But all that they've been given, all the strength that they have, they've used against him. They return, but it's not to God. Not like they're supposed to. They're like a bow, an arrow that doesn't shoot straight, that doesn't get to the target. They aim for repentance and they hit rebellion. So God will destroy them and undo them as a nation. That's a great ending to our passage, isn't it? But what do we do this morning if we're fake? What do you do if you're a fake? What if you feel that even your repentance to God is fake? It comes and goes like the morning dew. Or like a faulty oven that burns others. Or a cake that's got on the outside but burns underneath. Well, I have one word to you this morning from God. Grace. Grace, a passage like this will crush us unless we understand grace. All of us will feel like the Israelites in this passage at times. All of us will, because we're sinners. We run hot and cold and often lukewarm at the same time, don't we? And grace doesn't mean that that doesn't matter, but it does mean that there's hope. And hope is incredibly important, isn't it? Think of poor Gomer in the story, so sinfully stupid that she'd sold herself into the arms and clutches of other men. It would have seemed hopeless. She couldn't turn to God, but God turned to her. Hosea came and redeemed her, not because she was some incredible prize, but to show God's grace. God's grace means that even though we can all be hypocrites at times, God's kindness wins. Now this is not an excuse to sin, it's not an invitation to hypocrisy, it's actually a call to fight hypocrisy. We don't make ourselves out to be less sinful than we are. We're real with God and we're real with each other. It also means we don't make friends with our sin and just get comfortable with it. We seek to kill our sin. We seek to be growing and moving. We're not perfect, but we're works in progress, aren't we? We need to be able to say with John Newton, I'm not the man I ought to be, I'm not the man I wish to be, and I'm not the man that I hope to be. But by God's grace, I am not the man I used to be. That will keep us from hypocrisy, moving, killing sin in our lives, growing closer to God. So really what we need to do is come and sit at the foot of the cross. The ultimate reminder, isn't it, that we're more sinful than we imagined. You know, we are so sinful that Jesus had to die on the cross. We're more sinful than we ever imagined, but we're more loved than we ever dreamed. That's grace. And grace is the only cure to hypocrisy, the only cure to fakery. The one who hung there on the cross was not a fake. He was the only one that can give us hope, even in the midst of our hypocrisy and fakery.